This episode is sponsored by Squirrel Sisters. Squirrel Sisters is a health and wellness company founded by sisters Gracie and Sophie Tyrrell, who are on a mission to help you treat your health. As we all know, I love my food, but one thing I tend to struggle with is the balance between being healthy and indulging in quote-unquote snacks. I like to keep my sugar consumption reasonably low without restricting myself on tasty treats and that's where Squirrel Sisters come in. They have a range of healthy snacks, bars and nibbles that can be found in stores across the nation including Waitrose, Holland and Barrett, Selfridges and online on Amazon. All their products are 100% natural, vegan, gluten-free and made with the highest quality ingredients and most importantly, do not have any added sugars. It's a win-win for all. My personal favourite is the Cacao Orange Energy Bars, which taste just like a Terry's Chocolate Orange, but without all the bad stuff. Follow the brand on Instagram, at Squirrel Sisters. And just to make your life even more exciting, Squirrel Sisters are offering all listeners a 25% discount off everything on their website. Use the code CRAZYSEXYFOOD at checkout. And now for the episode. Hello and welcome to the Crazy Sexy Food Podcast. I'm Hannah Harley-Young, a photographer by trade and a foodie at heart. Each week I sit down and chat all things food with well-known foodies, industry insiders, chefs and people who just love their food. Today I'm joined by Alia Moreau, the Egyptian-born, London-raised journalist and author of the best-selling book, The Greater Freedom, Life as a Middle Eastern Woman Outside the Stereotypes. Released in 2019, the part memoir, part social exploration, identifies the pressures and experiences that come with growing up in a mixed cultural background. Should she identify as Western, or should she be more Arab, like her Middle Eastern peers? Does she need to fit into a certain stereotype? This is a subject I have been fascinated by through my Iranian heritage, so it's a pleasure to have Alia on the podcast, delve into her thoughts and feelings about this, but also not forgetting the all-important reason she's here, which is to discuss the common language of food, no matter where you're from. Alia, thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. I love that intro. I always say to everyone, it's a bit like, this is your life. Like, this is what you've done. It's always so weird hearing back when someone reads your bio or whatever. You're like, oh, okay, yeah. Is okay. that me? <laughs> <laughs> so how are you? How you been getting on? Yeah, um, it's such a weird question to answer these days. I'm like, well, thank God I'm here and alive and healthy and my family are healthy. And that's all. And, you know, I have a roof over my head. And I guess it's just made us all appreciate all of those things, which um, we took a bit for granted before. So in that vein, I'm very good. Um, in the vein of like, what the hell is going on? I'm a bit confused <laughs> about life. I, I think we all are. Yeah. Yeah, I think we were just having a chat before we started recording and you were saying PTSD and I was saying I had social anxiety and I just think, I feel like actually at the end of all of this, I really wonder what the mental health implications are going to be. I think it's going to be pretty severe. I think so too. I think so too. I think even just in terms of like speaking to other humans and being near people, like I've been in, I've been in lockdown by myself. So even going to like see my mom or my dad and they're like, give me a hug. And I'm like, ah like really nervous about it how have you coped with being by yourself i think i've 
I had a little bit of training when I was writing my book um, mm. because I very much locked myself away to do that. So I think that I sort of got to know myself really well throughout that process and, and sort of spent so much time with myself that I was a little bit prepared um, in, in a weird way, obviously not for, you know, not being allowed to step outside my door. Like that's a whole other conversation, but I definitely had ups and downs. I think there were times where I really enjoyed it and felt very thankful to be on my own and not need to think about, you know, someone else's mood or someone else, how someone else was feeling that I was like stuck in a house with. Um, but then at times, obviously, I think the most thing I really missed was like physical touch. Like I didn't feel any kind of, you know, hug or anything for months on months. So that was, I think, the most difficult part for me. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's been challenging for everyone in all different ways. I mean, you know, also on the flip side, it's not normal to be around, you know, a husband or a parent or, you know, any member of the family for this amount of time. You know, it's sort of, there's sort of the grass is kind of not really greener on either side at the moment. Throughout this time, have you felt inspired? Have you been writing? Like, where have you, where's your head been at with all of that? I think it's been quite interesting because I was in LA just before lockdown happened and I actually had to quickly like change my flight and come back before the borders closed. But I was doing, you know, book promo and I was still very much in that kind of, like the book had just, had just come out basically. So I was very focused on that. And then I think lockdown in a way was sort of, an opportunity god it's weird to like say all of these things when people are dying but it was like a chance to kind of think about okay what are the next steps because the book's out now right so i launched a newsletter the greater conversation which was like off the back of the book because i had just been receiving all these amazing messages from middle eastern women and i wanted like sharing their story and being like i related to this part and this is my experience and i kind of wanted to create a platform where we could all share together and you know each week I have guest pieces from a different Middle Eastern woman so like I launched that I launched a podcast um and I've been you know really working on my journalism and and another a few, another few few bits so I think for me it was kind of yeah interesting to sort of have the have the space to slow down and think about what I wanted my next steps to be instead of always just rushing ahead well it seems like you've put your sort of your a lot more free time to good use I had nothing else to do yeah exactly (laughs) I mean aside possibly from eating because I know that I am carrying some serious COVID weight before COVID what was your relationship with food like you know are you are you a food lover or do you sort of just see it as a fuel no I'm definitely definitely a food lover to quite a a, quite a funny extent because like (laughs) I won't eat if I'm not hungry you know so I'm I'm trying to like to actually change that mindset a little bit because I'll just like starve and then I'll be like oh yeah I'm so excited to now eat like a whole pizza you know um so yeah I've always always been a food lover and it's definitely been something important in my family even growing up every single Sunday we'd go for family lunch every day at 7 30 we had dinner like when I was growing up at school I was allowed to like go out after school but I had to be home for dinner um so it's always been sort of a communal thing and we all you know join around the table and stuff like that so it's always been a very big part of my life and yeah same as you like during corona I just like gained a lot of weight I mean, I think mine was sort of part boredom, part anxiety, part, well, this is the only thing I know how to do well, 
is eat. <laughs> I think that was something that really upset me actually is I've always like I eat out very often. Um, and you know, even just the nature of our jobs and stuff, like we'll be out at an event or like we'd meet out for dinner or whatever. So when Corona happened and we were all in lockdown, I was like, how am I going to feed myself? <laughs> yeah, we're going to get onto that in a minute because you, you, you did put up some very funny stories uh, during the midst of, of, of big lockdown um, and we will get to that. But you mentioned your childhood and I actually, you know, I mentioned also in, in the intro that you grew up and you were born in Egypt. So talk to me about your childhood um, over there and what was the environment like? You know, what was what was the food like? You know, for a lot of people, people think that Middle Eastern food is just, is just all the same in every country. You know, that's just the umbrella term and each country has its complete different cuisine. So, you know, what were you eating? Who was cooking? What was going on? My mom's mom was like a master kind of homemaker. Um, and we used to go have the best lunches at her house after school. So she used to make, well, there's there's so many yummy things, but there was one thing in particular, which I like dream about, which my mom still makes for me when I'm feeling sad or like sick, which is macarona bechamel, which is basically like pasta, like tubes and just cream and cheese and you can put Fab. chicken in there and it's so yummy so wait so that's like a bit like a macaroni cheese kind of yeah 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 okay and then sort of but day to day you know was food of importance within the family unit you know you mentioned that you'd always have to be back for dinners you know what was what were you eating we ate a lot of different things, actually. And I was such a like spoiled child when it came to food. And I I didn't eat anything green for a very long time. Um, till now, I actually hate lettuce and I hate cucumber really? and I will never eat it, even in a burger or anything. Um, so that was, yeah, I basically was very picky with my food for ages. But there were loads of really yummy things. Like there's one thing in particular that we often have for like Saturday lunch, which is called molokheya. And it's, I don't really know how to describe what it is, but it's rice and chicken, which is okay. kind of served separately on the table. And then everyone has their own order of doing things. But like, I'll chop up the chicken, put it in a bowl, put the rice. And then there's this thing called molakheya, which is like this like soupy green, like Ooh. liquid thing. I, don't, I really don't know what it is, but it's like chopped up something or other. And it is divine. What? So it must be like maybe chopped up herbs and sort of spices and whatnot. It's like a particular, I think it might even be called molacheya, like the, the, the vegetable. Okay. Like I don't, I don't even really know, but it's insanely good. And you have it with like loads of garlic. And how would you explain or describe Egyptian food to someone that has never tried it before? Honestly, it's not like super dissimilar to, you know, Lebanese food or, you know, it's similar in terms of like meats and, and, you know, kebab and rice and like some busak, like parcels of fried cheese and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Um, My eyes just lit up. I was like, <laughs> I mean, who doesn't like fried cheese? I yeah, mean, come it's on. just the best. <laughs> um, so there's loads of stuff like that, but then there are some things that are specific. So there's something called kushari, which actually a few there's a few like st Egyptian street food restaurants that have opened in London that serve it, and that's like rice and pasta and lentils and gar like fried chopped like onions. You know the crispy onions. Um, 
and that's that's called koshari basically and it's all of those things together so there's a few things that are specific to being egyptian um but again it's it's not super dissimilar to other middle eastern food i would say it's actually really interesting because i obviously you know being iranian i know iranian food really well and i also know lebanese food really well but it's interesting that um, Egyptian food uses a lot of pasta. It does, or maybe that's just my family. Well, no, I'm, I'm sure I'm sure there are, you know, some well-known recipes. It's just, it's just really interesting because you sort of think, you know, you don't really put pasta with, you know, sort of any Middle Eastern cuisine. So interesting. Yeah. I'll be doing some investigation after this and doing some cooking. <laughs> so you came to the UK sort of back and forth around the age of eight. What did you think of British food when you came over here? Uh, it's a good question. I don't really know if I ever thought of it as like British or like, you know what I mean? Like it was kind of just like we had like fish and chips at school and that kind of stuff. And I don't, I think I was too young and I, I had traveled so much. Like we kept kind of going back and forth. So I'm not sure if I had like binary um, things in my mind like that. I don't know. But I do remember that when my friends would come over, I'd be like really embarrassed to... <sighs> How, give them molacheya especially which is like this green liquid I'd be like oh my god they're not gonna like it a few weeks ago I had Melissa Hemsley on the podcast and you know her mother is Filipino and she said exactly the same thing as you she'd come over her friends would come over to the house and they'd be like oh what's all these smells because you know no one really in those days probably knew what Filipino food was and, and like you you know it wasn't as easily accessible as it is nowadays you know all these wonderful cuisines fast forwarding you know you sort of base yourself in London you go on to study sociology and psychology then you went on to do a master's in journalism so did you always know that you wanted to write I think for me writing was always something that I did just for myself um I moved country a lot my parents were always fighting like there was so much turmoil as like a teenager just growing up, you know, between countries and all of that, that I would take to writing as a way to kind of explain my feelings to myself and sort of come to peace with them. And, you know, it, it felt like I remember I'd, I would sometimes read out loud to my friends what I had written, like on the phone to explain to them how I felt. Like there was one friend in particular who was very generous to give me her ear like that. Um, but it was never something that I thought that I could actually do as a career or anything that I really thought about in that way. And I went to uni, like you said, I studied sociology and psychology, still not really knowing what I wanted to do. I thought maybe I would be um, a therapist or something like that. And then I think as I got a bit older and I, I you know, met this guy who was my, became my boyfriend for a while and he was very creative and all his friends were doing all these amazing creative things and I think seeing them it sort of gave me um the courage or or the sort of idea that that might even be something that I was able to do um you know there were such set careers especially as a Middle Eastern woman of what it is that I was supposed to enter into or what it is that I was supposed to do I never thought I could be a journalist or I could be a writer you know and then um yeah, I can't, it's been about 10 years now, I think, where I've really just thrown myself into it. But it took it took a long time. But it was always something, like I said, that I did for myself, even before I realized that it was something that I could share and that other people would would enjoy reading or would feel seen. 
interestingly um you mentioned about how you would sort of write i assume it was kind of like your thoughts and feelings you know whether it was during family turmoil or just like you know the the trials and tribulations of growing up as a teenager because i've always found that quite a cathartic experience you know growing up i used to find it really difficult to like communicate with friends about how i felt about things or you know what girls are like always like bickering and things and i'd always write letters and i wouldn't necessarily send them to the girls but it was the process for me to get everything out and after i'd written it i just felt like i i'd sorted it out and been solved and I think there's such a power behind doing that. I think And especially so. putting pen to paper, you know? I still do it, pen to paper. And we're not talking about typing. I'm talking about actual pen to paper. I think there's something really powerful. And, you know, there's so many quotes that I've come across recently which, which speak to that as well, of, like, actually, when you write something down, in the process of doing that, it works itself out as it's coming out. So, like, there have been times, you know, where I've written something and then I've read it back and I've been like oh my God, yeah, that's exactly it. That's exactly why I feel like that, or that's exactly what happened. And even just that being able to explain it to yourself, I think can just make all the difference, even if it's not actually going to solve that problem or it's not really going to change the world or whatever, but it's still it's still in just recognizing it for yourself, I think is it's very powerful. Totally. And when you started realizing that that was the path you wanted to take, what i mean i mean it's obviously obvious but you know what drew you to wanting to focus on your personal experience as a middle eastern woman you know was was it literally just that it was just obvious that that was what you knew and that was what you felt sort of strongly about i think it actually took me a really long time i only quite recently started writing um about being middle eastern and actually my, i think my book was probably one of the first times that I really did I started off being a music journalist um, and then I did a lot of fashion and social commentary and you know I think I had imposter syndrome for a very long time about being Middle Eastern because I didn't feel like I kind of fit into to what it was supposed to mean um, and I you know I, I just kind of felt like oh well I'm not really who they want to hear from when people say Middle Eastern like they're not really talking about me and I kind of really focused always on the universal which I think is great and important because there is so much universe we all are humans right and there's so much universal experience I think that we all share but I think that as I kind of got a bit older and, and a little bit more comfortable in my voice um, and my ability to kind of say what use my words to say what I wanted them to say and then as I also started to just pay more attention and kind of realize how reductive the stereotypes were around what it meant to be Middle Eastern um, and Muslim and all of these things, I felt like, okay, no, I really, I really have to contribute. I think I definitely felt it more and more as I got older that I even was these two things. Whereas when I was younger, I was kind of just like bumbling through and just trying to like figure it all out. And for someone who you know, might not understand the feelings that you were feeling, you know, what were those pressures or what were those stereotypes that you felt you needed to conform to? Because, you know, I mean, I'm only half Iranian, so I haven't felt it possibly as extremely as you did, but I have a, I used to hang out with a lot of Iranian friends and and I would see it, but I think maybe I was a little bit 
stunted in my my thoughts towards them about what they were going through and but it's something that I'm so fascinated about because I identify with that side of the culture a lot and I do have a, have a lot of issues with it and I also embrace it as well so I'd be interested to like know like where were they coming from was that coming from your parents was it coming from people around you was it coming from yourself well I think what's quite interesting and and you know, what it took me a while to understand was that my parents, for example, are very open-minded and pretty liberal when it comes to many things. But it was almost the messages that I had absorbed from the society and the world that kind of told me who I should be and what I should want. And that stems to everything. Like, you know, we shouldn't have sex till we get married. Like, we should definitely shouldn't be sexual beings. We're supposed to be nice to look at. Like, we should always have, like, a nice blow dry and, you know, have your hair, body hair removed. And, you know, you should be a good wife and you should aspire to have a husband who has money and is gonna have you're gonna have a son and you're not really gonna work and you know there's so many things and and Mm. i and i think what i found really interesting actually in in writing the greater freedom as well was coming to understand that actually a lot of these pressures on women are cross-cultural um like it's a patriarchal world that we live in ultimately and yeah it plays out you know in different extents and in different ways in various cultures but actually the underlying message everywhere is is kind of a bit similar really i think and when you decided to write the greater freedom how how did you sort of decide the process because obviously you know it is a personal memoir about you but it's also, you know, you go out and, and you speak about others. Sort of what was what was sort of like your plan of action? What did you want to do? And did you go back to Egypt at all during the during that process? I did, actually. I went back to Egypt, I think it was a couple of times while I was writing, um, mainly because my friends were, my best friends were getting married. So I had to go, I'm like, okay, I have to, can't miss that. <laughs> um, but I think for me, it always felt very important that it was not just a memoir. Like I really wanted it to be part memoir, part cultural commentary. And I think part of that is because that's, you know, as a journalist, that's very much the way I write, where I I sort of intertwine these things. And then I felt also that it was important to kind of have like a a face and like someone to follow along this journey with, you know, in order to empathize and, and in order to feel like, okay, cool, there's like a real human here. This is not all just like stats and figures. But then at the same time, I really wanted to back up my personal experiences, you know, with quotes from other people who felt the same or who went through the same and with research and statistics, really, ultimately, just to kind of prove my points, even if, you know, to myself. And and I think it also made it feel a little less scary because a lot of the conversations that I have in the book, a lot of the things I talk about are not things I'm supposed to talk about. Um, Again, as a Middle Eastern woman, like I'm definitely not meant to to have sex, let alone talk about it and write about it for like public consumption. Um, So I think that kind of made me feel a little bit braver and more comfortable to have it backed up with things. I assume your parents have read the book. They have, yeah. And what were their thoughts on it? (laughs) You know, it's funny because again, they're very open-minded and had they Mm. not been, I would not have even been this person to even write the book or any of those things. Um, So they were always very, very supportive. But it's what I think what's been really special for me is how much closer it's made me and my mom. 
Um, really? Yeah, That's interesting. Because even when she read it, like she she was kind of trying to pass on many of these messages to me that she had absorbed as well. So when she read it, she was like, it kind of freed her as well from needing to feel like she needed to ascribe to those things. It kind of helped explain things to her. And she was a bit like, like she actually texted me and she said, you know, she had always said to me before, don't say that you're a feminist and lower your voice and don't be so opinionated. And then she sent me a message and she was like, you know, in the way that you've described it, I actually think that I'm a feminist as well. Oh my God, amazing. Like, oh my God, this is the best thing you could ever have said to me. Um, wow. And it's just made us so, so much closer. So it's just been so, oh, it's just been amazing. I love that. And, you know, sort of long-term or even sort of medium to long-term, what are the changes that you would like to see sort of off the back, not only of your book, but also of kind of like what you stand for? You know, what for your for your future children or for your peers who are, could be a bit younger you know who maybe don't have the platform or the ability to speak up as much as you can what would you like to kind of see as sort of like the future legacy i think so much of it comes down to shame you know we're made to feel ashamed about pretty much every single thing um and i think that's something that i really hope for for myself to continue working towards to not feel shame and for everyone else like i think it's such a it's such a like cock block excuse like not even just in terms of having sex but just in terms of like everything um to feel ashamed about how we look what we want who we are everything and i think that's the most important thing is to is to combat and to rid ourselves of shame because then we can really be ourselves and there's a quote um at the, the first page of my book is this quote and it says freedom to be oneself is all very well the greater freedom is not to be oneself and i think that really sums up like what i wanted to do with the book and and you know to answer your question what i want moving forward and and just in general as my message is like we don't even need to be the version of ourselves that we think we need to be or that someone's told us we can be like the greater freedom is to unpick all of that and just be able to make our own decisions that are rooted in ourselves not in what someone else thinks of us or wants for us before you said obviously you know the book came out at the end of last year um would you have had corona have happened would you have gone back to egypt with the book to do some like promo and book tour i actually did manage to do that which was great oh, yeah in okay, december good. um i went to egypt and i had a number of events there which was really cool and i think what felt really nice for me actually is like i said i was a bit nervous about it um you know how it would be received especially in egypt and in the middle east but what's mm. been so great is actually the response has just been so wonderful. Um, and I feel like I've actually gotten perhaps even more support from the Middle East and from Middle Easterners than from the West, which I think when I was writing it, I thought might possibly be the other way around. It shows you people are probably open to, to you know, hearing a different side and, and side and also change, which is great. Bringing it a little bit back to the food for a minute, um, we mentioned about COVID and, you know, you suddenly realising that you had to feed yourself during what has been quite an unprecedented time. So as an adult, you know, now we're talking, you're sort of 
in the UK, you've gone through university. What's your relationship with food like sort of over the past 10 years? It's been, yeah, an interesting one because like I said, I love food, but I do have, I think, kind of an interesting relationship with it where I'm not very like regular. Like I often won't really have breakfast and then I'll be starving and I'll eat something around three. Like I can kind of like forget to eat sometimes, which is very unhealthy. And it's something that I'm like working to improve. Um, and then I'll like be out and I'll eat, you know, like, so it's, it's kind of like, I love it so much but I'm not, I don't use it as fuel at all. Like it's all about pleasure for me, basically. Did you eat breakfast today? I'm having my smoothie. There it is. <laughs> I always ask everyone actually at the beginning what they had for breakfast. So I'm glad that you have a smoothie today. <laughs> yes, I've been trying to have smoothies every day. That's been really nice actually, because it's not something that you need to like chew and like, you know, it's just like easy. That's also a very good way for you to get your greens in, you know, those ones that you don't eat. <laughs> I know, it's awful. You know, it was so funny. I was tw So I was like 21 and I went to train with a personal trainer. And I think I thought that, it, I, I obviously thought it was cool to not eat greens. Like I thought that was like, oh, I don't care. Like I'm not like a girl who like goes on diets, you know, like so stupid things that you think yeah. when you're young before you, you know, realize that that's a really stupid thing to think. Anyway, so I was with this trainer and he was like, oh, so, you know, what do you eat? Like, what are you going to eat? And I was like, pizza, pasta, I don't eat vegetables. And he was like, wait, how old are you? And I was like, oh, okay, yeah. I know. And then I literally, from then, I was like, okay, I think I'd better start incorporating some greens into my diet because this is embarrassing. <laughs> Well, at least, I mean, at least he kind of told you in sort of like a roundabout kind of way. I found him so good looking as well. So I was like, no. Do you know what? Listen, we must, you must always have a good looking trainer. That's the only way to like get around all of this because you'll just do whatever they say. And during this period of time at home, have you been cooking loads? So yeah, I tried. I really tried. Like I've been doing uh, Mindful Chef and HelloFresh, which I found so great because they, you know, send the recipes to your door with all the ingredients that you need. So it's, I think that for me is something that I always found difficult. Like, wait, well, how do I put all of these things together? Like, what is this going to make? Um, so having it sent to my door with like step-by-step ingredient recipe has just been phenomenal so I have been I've been cooking a lot more than usual and actually really enjoying it but I did have quite a few um disasters as well which you know I chronicled on on my Instagram which I can see you laughing at already my, my particular <laughs> favorite I think it was it a batch of cookies something happened to them what happened to them oh my god am I really gonna tell you this so <laughs> basically I'm so embarrassed <laughs> Basically, I'm I'm laughing with you. I'm not laughing at you. Thank you. you. Thanks. <laughs> I appreciate that. My oven. Uh, basically, I had been using my oven on the wrong setting for like ages. It was on grill instead um, of on. Oh my god! Pan. Okay. <laughs> they were burnt and flat. Did you try a bit? It was disgusting. <laughs> it was like the most horrible thing I've ever eaten. <laughs> I mean, listen, you know what? You tried. Well, you've got, I managed You've got, you've got to fail a few times until you actually succeed. I, you know? I made some cookies once I figured out that my oven had been on the wrong setting. 
I managed, I, I improved. And then I made like a banana bread. Like I joined the ranks of the banana bread bakers. And that was Good all that I needed. That was all that I needed to, to fit in into quarantine. At least you can tick that off your list. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, to, to be fair, um, like my mom is a really, really good cook. And there have been times when she's got the grill mixed up with the oven, you know, because she's she's the Iranian side of my family. So she makes every now and again, she'll make a lot of Iranian food. And we, you know, I feel like every every cuisine around the world has its own version of a kebab. Right. So we've got the juja kebab. And she sometimes makes them and she puts them under the grill of the oven. And I think she was doing a dinner party a couple years ago, but she'd put it onto the oven setting. Oh, no. And that doesn't really sort of like you just don't, it just didn't really cook the chicken in the way that it was meant to cook. And like the dinner party's like full steam ahead. And she's like, what is going on? Like they're basically raw. And I, I was like, mom, you've had it on like fan oven. You haven't grilled them. And she was oh, no. like, oh shit, like, <laughs> so it's it's a very easy, it can be an easy mistake. Well, I really appreciate you telling me that story because I'm just like, oh my Don't God, Don't worry so that it I think happens. this is the most embarrassing thing I've ever revealed about myself. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's pretty good going. We'll find something else. <laughs> I have to say I'm obsessed with Iranian food. Oh my God. It's the it's best. It's the best. It's so good. Which seamlessly brings me on to asking you what some of your favorite restaurants are in London. Ooh, um, so there's one restaurant that I'm obsessed with that I've been going for like 15 years and I only ever have the same two dish, well, one or the other dish. And it's called Olivetto's. And it's in, do you know it? I've just saw your mouth yeah, drop I open. Do. Oh. I what do. What do you get from there? Oh God, I haven't been there in years, but I know it very well. It's in Belgravia. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And there's a few actually. There's Olivo Carne, there's Olivo Mare. That's it, Olivo Mare. Um, I mean, I know that when I went there, I've definitely had a pasta. I want to say it was a pasta um, with just like, it was like pa- really simple, like a linguine with garlic, and parsley. Crab. Oh, it might be. That's my favorite. Oh, that's dish. it. Oh, well, there we go. <laughs> it's the best crab linguine. Oh my God, I dream about it. And they also have a crab pizza. Do they? Mm, okay, I don't know how I feel about I've that. Because I'm a huge pizza fan. No, no, this is phenomenal. So is it? Is it like an actual pizza base with tomato sauce? I don't know. I feel like it's not. It is. It is tomato, but I feel like it's not quite tomato. Like they must do something different to it because it's it's not so red. Okay. Um, oh, I'm interested. I might. And it's and all like that. chopped, like grated kind of crab, if you oh, know what I mean. Do you know what? I love crabs so much. We might need to do that once we're out of all of our, this madness. I'm so down. You know what? <laughs> so my best friend um, treated me. So it was my birthday during lockdown. And she came to pick me up and she was like, okay, I've got a treat for you. And we went and we sat like in this park and we had some drinks. And then she was like, okay, second stop of the birthday. And I was like, where are we going? We went and got takeaway from Olivetto's and went to sit in the park. That's so lovely. That's it the way to do so it. Oh, nice. Oh, that's I love that. So thoughtful. Yeah. Are there any good Egyptian restaurants in London? Oh, that's always a tricky one, isn't it? Because you want to just be like my mom's kitchen. Mm. Um, I'm not sure. I know that there's there's Kushari Kitchen, which is that that Kushari I was talking about earlier, the pasta and rice. Um, there's there's a restaurant called Kushari Kitchen which does that really well and where is that I think it's in Soho okay 
Um, and there's Nora, which is really good. I don't think it's Egyptian though, which is in Victoria, N-O-U-R-A. Um, and that has really good, really, really good food. But I don't, I don't really go out to eat Arabic food. Do you go out? To, you wouldn't go out to eat your like. Um. So there's only in terms of Iranian food. I mean, yes, obviously my mum's, you know, biasedly is the best, and also actually unbiasedly is the best. Um, <laughs> if I'm gonna eat Iranian food out, I will either go to this really unassuming restaurant off High Street Kensington on, I think it's Warwick Road, called Mosen, which is owned by a husband and wife. And I think it's some of the most beautiful home-cooked Iranian food you can get in London. And then um, another, this is probably one of the most well-known Iranian restaurants because um, they catered my wedding last year. We oh, had a amazing. whole Persian feast at my wedding um, and it's called Galleria, which is in Marlebone. Okay, On cool. New Cavendish Street. And the guy who owns it, Ali, is a wonderful man. And he basically, he has the restaurant, but he's kind of like known as like the Persian caterer of London. So all the amazing Persian parties that happen in like people's houses or weddings or birthdays, he caters it all. Amazing. But he does it in like a proper traditional Iranian feast. So it's all just beautifully presented in like massive, beautiful ceramic bowls. It's all like, you know, like Ottolenghi style when it's yes. all like on different levels. So yeah. Those are probably oh, my yum. two favorite. Yeah. You're making I me really missed, hungry. Uh, yeah, I'm getting really hungry. I miss, <laughs> I miss like eating out comfortably. Me too. I've tried it. I've been out a couple of times and it's just, for me, like one of my greatest pleasures. And I think as you said, you know, is like being like eating out. I do love it. You know, for me, it is, it's a treat. And there's a real sexiness and elegance behind eating out. It doesn't really matter where you're going. And the times I have gone out since lockdown has eased, you know, like some places don't have music. Obviously, you know, I, you have to be socially distanced. That's fine. But it's like they don't have menus anymore. You've got to like scan a QR code yeah. onto your phone. And I'm kind of like, I don't want to be with my phone. I'm out at a restaurant. Like this just defeats the whole object. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's kind of stripped that away from me a little bit. But, you know, I'm hoping that we will obviously get to a point where things maybe go back to some kind of so. normalcy. So I always end my interviews with a few quick fire questions. My favourite snack in the entire world is a packet of crisps. Ooh. What is your favourite flavour of crisps and why? I might be really bougie here. There's... Oh, please be bougie. <laughs> There are these like truffle crisps that I'm obsessed with. The Torres ones. Yes. Oh. Oh, they're so they good. They are so dangerous. I can eat the whole thing. They are so dangerous. You know, they do other really crazy flavors, that brand. I found them the other day. They do caviar flavor. Oh, I don't know about that. That's yeah, a bit too I'm not sure. Me. I mean, listen, I, I mean, yeah, that's like pushing it even further. I mean, I love caviar, but I, I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm not that bougie, guys. Don't like get too excited. <laughs> but you know, um, I only like caviar when I'm not buying it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know how I feel about caviar crisps. Yeah. I but anyway, know. those those truffle crisps are just everything. Divine. What is the craziest food you've ever eaten? I think I'm a bit boring here. Um... 
craziest food i feel like i want to say snails but i don't feel like snails are that crazy but although i guess for some some people would think they're super crazy i love snails oh i love do them. you i do do i like them you know i've got a huge huge phobia of snails oh okay yeah. so you definitely wouldn't eat it <laughs> she's then. looking at me like uh i have a phobia I... of cats so i can't do you right here yeah yeah, no, I actually, like, I can't be near, like, thinking about it makes my skin crawl. <laughs> I think it's the combination of slug and shell. I don't know, but it's, yeah. I'm, I'm not, I'm not good. But I have heard that they are very tasty with a bit of garlic. Mm. What's been your most memorable meal? Can I, can, okay, I'm going to give it like a really random answer that just came to my head. There's this place in Miami um, that have pizza slices that are basically your whole body and i love like my most memorable meals have been like my new year's eves in miami where at like 6 a.m basically i don't know it's memorable because i'm too drunk to remember but like and then you go and you eat this huge slice of pizza and it is just heaven that sounds just like the best thing i've ever heard in my life there's nothing better than a drunken pizza slice it's and this is like the the size of your whole body I feel like I've seen us on Instagram. Mega pizza. Okay, because I've spent quite a bit of time in Miami and I don't know why I haven't been there. Okay. I'm adding that to my list. Finally, and most importantly, I think, live to eat or eat to live. Oh, no, 100% like live to eat. Amazing. That was the answer I was wanting. I mean, I'm not. My problems come though. story of my life <laughs> i mean i don't judge if you want to um eat to live but you know uh, as i can tell by you you know we love food and it's a pleasure and and i think that's how it how it should be seen i think so too alia thank you so much for joining me on the podcast Thanks so much for having me so it's lovely been- to catch up with you and you know i wish you all the luck for the future with what's going on and i hope that you get to continue promoting your book around the world once you're able to you can follow alia on social media at alia muro until next time thanks so much enjoy your lunch (laughs) thank you for listening and joining me this week please remember to subscribe to the podcast and tell a friend and another and maybe another don't forget to follow all the crazy sexy antics on instagram at crazy sexy food And please visit the Crazy Sexy Food YouTube channel where you will find the food show, how-to videos, interviews and everything in between. Until next time, goodbye. (laughs) 